those two responses that we give each week to the Word of God uh, come from the Jewish and Christian traditions and go back uh, 3,500 years with the Torah and almost 2,000 years with, with the Gospels. And so as the, those before us have said those things, we also commit ourselves to the Word of God. I'd like you to turn with me to Psalm uh, 119, uh, verse 97. 119, 97. While you're turning, I, I want to remind you that uh, we're in a series on the uh, biblical worldview within the context of the history of Western culture. I, I'm an anthropologist by training, and a uh, uh, anthropologist and historians are like cousins. Um, uh, historians love history and, and development uh, of events and peoples and eras and that, and anthropologists are interested in that. Uh, uh, one of the jokes about us is anthropologists and archaeologists will date any old thing, right? So uh, I was giving a lecture once uh, on dating techniques, and a bunch of students from CBU showed up, uh, and I was talking about uh, potassium-argon dating and dendrochronology. They thought I was talking about how to get a date, uh, so you have to be careful with those kind of things. Um, but I love history, and I love uh, learning and all of that, but there is something that I cling to more than anything else, um, and that is the Word of God. I am hopelessly uh, drawn to the scriptures. Uh, I am captured by them. They are, uh, for me, uh, everything because they are my link to God that I can hold in my hands. The Spirit of God, some people can't tell their emotions from the Spirit, right? But the Word of God, I can hold in my hands. Um, In uh, Psalm 119, verse 97... Oh, how I love your law. It is my meditation all day. Your commandments make me wiser than my enemies, for they are ever mine. I have more insight than all my teachers, for your testimonies are my meditation. I understand more than the aged, because I observed your precepts. I have restrained my feet from every evil way, that I may keep your word. I have not turned aside from your ordinance, for you yourself have taught me. How sweet are your words to my taste, yes, sweeter than honey to my mouth. And your precepts, from your precepts, I get understanding. Therefore, I hate every false way. Um, The scriptures are what we must attach ourselves to and our children to. Um, this verse says that God's uh, words are sweet to the taste, like honey. Uh, in Jewish tradition, when a child is ready to learn their Aleph Bet, the alphabet uh, of Hebrew, they give them the, uh, uh, the scriptures and they put honey on them and let them lick them, lick them so that they associate taste, that sweetness, with the word of God. Um, I think we should probably, as we're teaching our children the alphabet, the Greek alphabet, and the Hebrew alphabet, we should bake chocolate cookies 
And when they can say that letter, we give it to them to eat. And then maybe some of you adults will learn the Hebrew and Greek as well, you know. Um, we'll have to have semi-sweet chocolate because that's, I think, biblical. <laughs> so, um, this worldview uh, series that I've been in, uh, and I know I've, I've missed a couple weeks in between. It's like an every other week series, uh, but I hope you're able to follow it. Uh, today I'm going to address a great deal of history. I have to cover 2,000 years, generally, in one message. I have to get from where we were last time to where we need to be next time uh, without getting caught in history. Now, there are some people who could watch the History Channel for hours and hours and hours and be enamored. And there are some people who could watch the History Channel for five minutes and say, isn't there anything on TV, right? So some people like history and some people don't. I have already confessed that I love history, but I'm going to do a drive-by, no, a drive past Drive-by is a different expression in this culture. I'm going to drive quickly through, uh, through that history uh, in, in order to help you understand these worldview changes. I, su- I said that a worldview is an interpretive device that is learned and internalized uh, through our language, our culture, our religion, and our environment. It's caught within the community that we belong to. And the worldview of God that was uh, given to man in the in the Garden of Eden was lost, and then uh, lost even worse by the scattering of languages and geographic environments and cultures at Babel. And then God reintroduced his worldview through a people, the people of Abraham, through the Hebrew language, through the people, through the religion, through the, through the Torah, through the commandments, through the tabernacle and the temple, through all of that in the promised land so that God's word and his uh, understanding and his worldview would be a light to the Gentiles, to the nations. Um, And I then said that a mindset uh, is an attitude or a focus that maintains our direction and the intentionality of our life. Uh, We're living in a time when most people have the only intention they have is to do something later um, and, and think about what they will do later. Um, very few people really have a, have a plan uh, of their own making, let alone the one of God. Uh, the biblical mindset is humility and trust resulting in obedience. And the mindset of the world is pride and self-direction uh, resulting in at least disobedience and at worst, rebellion. So we're going to talk about those in several contexts through this series. I want to keep reminding you of that. Hopefully you'll memorize it if I keep saying it. I talked about four stages of worldviews. The ancient world, and then the pre-modern world, and then the modern world, and now the post-modern world. And we talked about the ancient world when I talked about two worldviews the Greco-Roman worldview, and the Judeo-Christian worldview. Those were very distinct worldviews. And then they were merged together, I talked about that last time, into the pre-modern worldview, which is Greco-Roman and Judeo-Christian, pulled all together. I'm about to talk about the modern worldviews, and those will make a lot of sense to you, because most of you either have a modern worldview, 
or your parents or grandparents had a modern worldview. Some of you may actually have a postmodern worldview, but, but that modern worldview will make a lot of sense to you when I talk about them next time. But I have to get there, and so I've called this the road to the modern worldview, from, from the pre-modern world to the modern world. I did make one major distinction that I want you to keep in mind throughout this series. And it's one of the reasons that I'm so attached to the scriptures. The Judeo-Christian worldview that our faith comes from saw the scriptures as the light to our path and to our feet so that we would interpret what we saw through the light of God's word. That's Judeo-Christian Greco-Roman looked at circumstances and how things worked out and tried to figure out what the gods were saying. So when somebody says to you, this happened to me, I wonder what God's trying to tell me. They are not speaking Judeo-Christianity. They're speaking Greco-Roman thinking. And it fills our churches and the synagogues. And the reason it does is those two worldviews were merged. So now we can look at God's word and say... What does God want me to do? Or we can look at the circumstances and say, it must be God's will. Or as I always say at the, at the um, university, uh, on one of my questions, uh, I asked them, I said, I asked this woman, I, I, uh, I asked a bunch of girls out. She was the only one who said yes, so it must be God's will. Right? That's, that's how we do it. That's not biblical, but it is Christian, unfortunately. And it's creating terrible problems for us because we are ignorant of God's word and we're using the force and calling it the Holy Spirit to try to make that work. So I want you to keep in, in mind what happened. Now, as the Greco-Roman Judeo-Christian worldviews were being merged by the early church fathers, and I gave you examples of that last time, uh, Judaism and Christianity both took a a part of the biblical worldview, but it became obscured. It became obscured for a number of reasons, but I want to uh, explain that to you and show you at least through one scripture how that happened. Um, there was a big divorce. I often say to people when they say, well, why do you say Judeo-Christian, uh, uh, Judeo-Christianity? And I say, because our spiritual parents, rabbinic Judaism, and the mother church, our father and mother spiritually, got a divorce a long time ago. And they each took some of the children. And they said to the children that they took, those other children aren't your brothers. They're bad. And that other group is bad. And then they compromised with the world, both of them, moved in with other partners, and so the garages of both house, households have both our inheritance and a bunch of other crap in it. And we have to, as Judeo-Christians, in our inheritance, go through both those traditions and find the things that are biblically based and take the things of the world that got merged and separate those. And it's a very difficult process. But that's what we need to do. That great divorce created a Judaism that had a blindness towards the gospel. Now we see that in Romans chapter 11, verse 25. So if you'll turn with me to Romans chapter 11, 25, and you may want to turn there because this will be the only text I'll be turning to because I'm doing so much history. Romans 11, beginning at verse 25 through 32. 
Paul says, and he's speaking to the Romans, and particularly he's trying to explain to them what the Gentile Christians, why the Jews were largely in the diaspora unwilling to believe the gospel. And it would be very easy then for the Christians to say, well, we believed and you didn't, so you're bad and you're stupid and you're bad and boast against the natural branches. And Paul says, don't do that. I don't want you doing that. So he says this in verse 25. I do not want you, brethren, to be uninformed of this mystery so that you will not be wise in your own estimation. I don't want you to have that mindset of the world where you're proud. That a partial hardening has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And so, all Israel will be saved. Just as it is written, the Deliverer will come from Zion and remove ungodliness from Jacob. That's the Jewish people. This is my covenant with them when I take away their sins. Now look at verse 28. Very very carefully. From the standpoint of the gospel, they are enemies for your sake. But from the standpoint of God's choice, they are beloved for the sake of the fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. For the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. Boy, talk about replacement. That verse, verse 29, oh, the gifts and the callings of God are irrevocable. Don't we love that in the church? And we claim it in every way. It's specifically talking about unbelieving Israel. Be careful about boasting against the natural branches. So these also now have become disobedient that because of the mercy shown to you, they may also now be shown mercy. For God has shut up all in disobedience so that he may show mercy to all. And then Paul goes crazy with the doxology. I don't have time to read. God put a partial blindness. Why, do, why is it so hard to get Jews to believe the gospel that's to them first? God's partially blinded them so that we Gentiles would be brought in to the people of God. Not as a replacement, but as an expansion. And at the end of the time of the Gentiles, and I think we're getting near there. It's getting easier to bring a Jew to the gospel and it's getting harder to bring a Christian because a Gentile, you've got to give them valet parking and you've got to tell them how wonderful they are and God needs them and all kinds of nonsense. And it's, that door is closing. And at that time, all Israel will be saved and the Lord will return, the dead will be raised and the kingdom that we pray to come will take place. Paul says a partial part of that. Some of it's their own hardness of heart. Part of it is an act of God for your sake to give you mercy, not to completely reject them. So I want you to keep that in mind. Now, secondly, Israel's also in diaspora. Because they're in diaspora, the temple and the tabernacle and all the things that they would do if they were following the commandments and the law would point them to the Messiah and they would see clearer. But they're in diaspora and they can't do those things when they're not in the land in that context. And as you know, even the Jews that are in the land today do not have access to the temple. They're just now beginning to get some access to the Temple Mount. And that's problematic for the area. 
They're also been persecuted. Jews have not been trying to stand up and say, hey, we're the people of God in diaspora. They have struggled with persecution, so they tried to stay under the radar in most of the places they've been. But anti-Semitism finds them. So Judaism has had its own issues in this time that I'm going to talk about. The church, the other half of our parents, lost the Hebraic mindset. Because as soon as there was a divorce between Judaism and Christianity, the Hebrew language became absent in the church. They simply used the Septuagint, the Greek Old Testament, the New Testament. They used the Greek background for that instead of the Hebraic background. And that changed the worldview for them. And so the church began to think more Greco-Roman and less Hebraic. And that would be lost in that framework. And because of that, they were both anti-Semitic and created a replacement theology where now they're the true spiritual Israel. When Paul says, we are the circumcision who worship God, he's talking about we Jews who follow Messiah are the true Jews. He's not saying you Gentiles are the true Jews because you accepted Jesus. But those things get read wrong. So, Israel and the church were both impacted by this separation. And they both compensated by blurring their understanding of the scriptures because of a struggle in this pre-modern worldview that they both lived in. So I want you to know that what I'm going to describe happening to the church also affected Judaism in the same way. But I don't have time to, to chase that part of the story. I'm going to stay with the majority framework, which is our history itself. So what were the problems of the pre-modern period? Now, the pre-modern period takes place around the 2nd to the 3rd century and goes all the way up to about the 1300s. So almost a 1,000 years. Okay, So I'm going to cover a 1,000 years in about 8 minutes. Okay, So we're moving at warp speed. But I think it's important for you to see. I'm going to say, there's that, and there's that, and there's that, and there's that. And there are books and libraries for every one of these things. And obviously, I can't give you all the detail. But I want you to have the flavor in it in the same way that if we were eating a meal and somebody said, what's that spice? We'd say, oh, that's garlic. And you go, oh, oh. You, you know, there's a lot to learn about garlic, but you'd know what it is. Okay? So that's what I'm doing. So first... This separation and hostility between the churches and the synagogues became an argument over the scriptures. That argument over the scriptures is a good way to keep people from one thing that we are required to do. And that is to be in unity. From the very beginning, Satan said to Eve, Has God said you can't eat from all the trees? She said, well, we can eat from all of them but that one. Oh, that's not what he meant. That's not correct, right? Satan sows discord among brethren, and the best way to do it is to get them fighting over doctrines. Now, I believe truth is truth. But I'm pretty sure, and I've been on this globe a while now, I'm pretty sure that some of you aren't completely correct on the scriptures. 
And I suspect that some of you suspect that I'm not always completely 100% correct on the scriptures. You'd be wrong, but no. <laughs> right? I have, a, I have a friend, Dr. John Fisher, who when he gives books, assignments to his students, he says, now, I don't agree with everything in these books. And some of them I wrote. Because we change. We see things clearer. Or we lose our vision. Right? So, what happened is, the church and the synagogue began to see your verse and raise you too. And fight that way. Which would later show up in the Reformation. And since then, we don't need the Jews to do it. We can do it with each other. I was thinking this morning about posting. The reason Christians can't stand persecution is because we can't stand each other. A house divided will fall. And if I find one wrong doctrine in you, or one wrong practice in you, you're not a real Christian. And you see that all over Facebook. The Catholic haters, and the Eastern Orthodox haters, and the Baptist haters, and the Pentecostal haters, and the haters and haters and haters. Both haters from those groups, and haters of those groups, who call themselves believers and followers of the Messiah. So, separation and hostility was one of the problems. There was a second problem, and if you want to write this down, you can. That is centralization. When the church separated from Judaism, it created several uh, locations that were kind of major centers of Christian uh, thought and influence. They were Rome, Antioch, Jerusalem, Alexandria in Egypt, and Constantinople. Those cities became the main places of Christian thought and, and development. And each one of them had a patriarch. And each one of them took care of the churches in the general area where they were. And what began to happen was there was a move towards centralization. Constantine called all the churches together in the 300s and said, okay, bishops, I want you to all come together. We're going to have a confab. And we're going to get together and we're going to get on the same page. Because that's very Greco-Roman. Greco-Roman is we've got to be on the same page. Jude Jewish is, if you think that's right, and I think this is right, you do that, I'll do this, and God will judge it. Judaism actually believes if two rabbis come to two different conclusions looking at the same passage, both seeking the glory of God, they are both speaking the word of God. That will never go in a Judeo-Christian, Greco-Roman world. Somebody's got to be right. Somebody's got to be wrong. And the truth is, we could both be wrong. But nobody, you can't say he's right and he's right. If you saw Fiddler on the Roof, you saw that kind of Hebraic thinking. The guy said something, he says, you know, you're right. And the other guy says the opposite. And he says, you know, you're right. And the guy says, he's right, he's right. They can't both be right. And Tebia says, you know, you're also right. Very Jewish. Okay? We see through a glass darkly. We don't have this down figured. I'm doing the best I can with what I understand. Let us discuss. Let us reason together on this. But if I say I'm right and you're wrong, then I get to persecute you. 
And so the church centralized. And what happened in that context was uh, we began to think of a universal church that wasn't unified, but was uniform. And once you have a uniformity, you have heretics. And the line of heretics keeps drawing tighter and tighter until it's around your neck as well. Third thing that happened in this time is people stopped reading. Illiteracy became constant. Uh, Even the clergy couldn't read. The bishops had to read. But the clergy didn't have to. They just had to memorize the Mass and do it. And the people didn't need to know it. And so if they didn't know what was being said, they just need to know when to stand up, when to sit down, when to come forward, when to, when to say amen, and when to come receive the, the Eucharist. That was it. They didn't need to know anything. Now when you have a centralized clergy, and you have an ignorant and illiterate laity, you're going to get corruption. Same thing had happened to Israel. Israel's kings had become corrupt and the priesthood had become corrupt. And there were times when there were statements saying that the priests didn't know the difference between a bull and a sheep. They didn't know the sacrificial animals. Because illiteracy means now a centralized corrupt clergy can manipulate people. And we began to get that. And when you add to the fact that the bishops not only had spiritual power, but they often had political power too, you have a terrible thing. That separation of powers that God had in the Torah. The king was one thing, the priesthood was another. And Saul as king, when he sacrificed, was punished by God because you don't blur those. Separation of church and state, if you will. With the result of an incredible superstition that grew up in the Middle Ages and the Dark Ages among God's people. They became magic. Uh, They they believed that that, uh, relics of, of priests and relics of saints could work miracles. And they got into this kind of contagious magic thing. They started doing indulgences. It was awful. Begging. Begging. For a reformation. So, what happened is, there was separation and hostility, centralization of spiritual government, illiteracy among the people, corruption among the clergy, and rampant superstition for almost a thousand years. Now, in the same way that the book of Kings and the book of uh, Chronicles Tells about the corruption of Israel. This king reigned and he did evil in the sight of the Lord. And this one reigned and he did evil in the sight of the Lord. This one reigned and he did evil in the sight of the Lord. This one reigned and he had a heart after his father David. Right? And this one, and he did evil in the sight of the Lord. Right? There was always occasionally a remnant. God always has a remnant. And even in the church, there was a remnant of people who maintained spiritual lives and maintained the truth and the care of the scriptures in that, in that terrible period that we're talking about. Now, during that time, some major shifts began to happen in Judaism and Christianity that 
you probably, you did all of this stuff you're probably somewhat aware of. The next thing you may have heard of but not know what it is. So I want to address that. There were language, cultural, and religious tensions that took place. And the reason they took place is, as you know, Paul talked about the Jews seek a sign and the Greeks seek wisdom, the worldview between the Judeo-Christian side and the Greco-Roman side was a significant divide. They got merged, but they had started as a divide. And that divide was linguistic, cultural, and religious, and geographic. All the platforms of what a worldview uh, reinforces. And so what happened in Judaism, I'll talk about Judaism first, There was an east-west divide between the diaspora Jews of the Roman kingdom and Europe. Those Jews who moved more into Europe were called Ashkenazi Jews. You probably heard that term, Ashkenaz or Ashkenazi Jews. They're, They're the Jews of Europe. They're the fiddler on the roof Jews. Okay. The other Jews were in Spain... And the Mediterranean, and they were called Sephardic Jews. Okay? The difference between the Ashkenaz Jews and the Sephardic Jews was cultural and linguistic. The Ashkenazi Jews took their Hebrew and merged it with German and created a language called Yiddish. And most Jewish shtick that comes out of the European Jewish experience and the Jews who suffered the most in the Holocaust were the Ashkenaz Jews. The Sephardic Jews took their Hebrew and attached it to Latin and Spanish because they were in Spain and the Mediterranean and they spoke Ladino a pidgin mixture of Latin, Spanish, and, um, and Hebrew. So they were Middle Eastern Jews. They were more Eastern Arabic kind of Jews. And the Western Jews were more European Jews. And in about A.D. 1000, they had somewhat different worship and somewhat different structures, but they... Kind of got along, but in A.D. 1000, Rabbi, I I can never remember his name, um, Rabbi uh, Gershom ben Judah, Gershom ben Judah, Gershom son of Judah, issued an edict because clearly among many of the Jews, there was a practice of polygamy going back to uh, reading about the patriarchs. And he put an edict that said, no, Judaism is... Uh, monogamous, not monotonous. Don't confuse those. It'll mess up your marriage. Okay, Monogamous, not monotonous. So, what happened is, the Ashkenazi Jews said, we will accept that edict, and the Sephardic Jews said, speak for yourself. Or as my Jewish friends say, two Jews, three opinions. Right? We'll hear you on this later, right? And so, one of the divides came there around the year 1000. Now, the church also had an east-west problem. The eastern church spoke Greek. The western church spoke Latin. 
and they created their own liturgies and they had some differences there. And those centers in Alexandria and, and Antioch and that were getting along. And what began to happen was uh, around the year 1054, so we're only talking about 50 years after this edict with the Jews, a split among the Christians took place. A group from, the, from Rome came to the church in Constantinople and said, we have a message for you. All of the patriarchs are good leaders of the church, but the bishop of Rome is in the seat of Peter and he is the final vicar of Christ. And they said, no, he's the first among brethren, among equals. And they said, no, he's it. And, by the way, we've changed the Nicene Creed. The Nicene Creed that they had all agreed upon said that the Holy Spirit proceeds from the Father. And the Roman Church said it proceeds from the Father and the Son. And the Eastern Christians said, wait a minute. You don't change the, the, the statement. We're not even arguing whether you're right or wrong. You may be right about the fact that he proceeds from the whole of the Godhead, but you don't change the statement. That was the agreed upon statement. And they said, the, the, the vicar said it, you're going to do it, and we're not going to do it, then we excommunicate you, then we excommunicate you, boom! And the church split. Eastern Orthodoxy, Western Catholic. That split has never been healed. The Latin church and the Greek-speaking church separated. Not only the cultures being different, but now you have the Sephardic and the Eastern church, Eastern, and you have the Western and Ashkenaz Jews, and you've got a, a, a separation, a cultural divide around the year 1000. So isn't that good? I got all the way through the first thousand years. Now, with all of the stuff that was going on, it was just a matter of time before push would come to shove. And the thing that brought push to shove started in China and spread into Europe. It was called the bubonic plague. It came into Europe and it was called the Black Death. And in a very short time, 25 million people in Europe died of this plague. 25% of Europe's population died. And all the superstition and all the prayers and all the petitions and all the good works didn't stop. A bishop would drop dead, a sinner would drop dead. A rich man would drop dead. A poor man would drop dead. Everybody was dropping dead. And people began to say, I don't know what to think. I don't know what to believe. I don't know what to do. And large amounts of money began to come into the few heirs who survived so that there was a great separation between the wealthy and the poor, an incredible separation between the wealth and the poor. And at the end of the 1300s, 
several movements began to take place in Europe. You heard them all in history. You promptly took the test and forgot them. So let me remind you briefly what they were. We call it the Renaissance, but it's actually the Renaissances. French word that means rebirth. It was a rebirth of the Judeo-Christian Greco-Roman world. After the illiteracy and the darkness uh, of, of those, this time, all of a sudden, they rediscovered Greece. They rediscovered the Iliad and the Odyssey. They rediscovered uh, Rome. They rediscovered art. They rediscovered music. And all of a sudden, there was a breathing of the scriptures and that. So what you get at the Sistine Chapel is you get all the biblical stories done and you'll see the Greek and pagan myths also attached in there. A new merging. But this one, a living merging. That early merge that had happened, that Augustine and others had done, had pretty much squelched. So now we have a new breathing of that up. And art and literature and theater and all of those things just exploded uh, around Europe between the 1400s and the 1800s. Now also in the 1400s to the 1700s, exploration took place. 1400, 1492, Columbus sailed the ocean aqua, blue, yeah. right? And he discovered India of a sorts, right? Now they already knew they were here, but it was new to Europe. Europeans, and uh, all of a sudden, we got the what could have been called the Colombian continents, got named by another guy, uh, and we got called America. And so, trade routes going over to China, all this stuff, the world began to, to explode and shrink in all kinds of travel. And what happened was very quickly, because the day that that Columbus was supposed to leave Spain. He couldn't leave the day he wanted to because Spain was telling all the Jews to get the heck out. And he couldn't get out of the harbor. He left the next day. And as soon as he discovered the Caribbean area, Jews came to the Caribbean. Sephardic Jews came to the Caribbean. The four oldest synagogues in the New World are found in the Caribbean. St. Thomas, Jamaica, uh, Carousel, I can't remember the other one, but uh, Linda and I and the Herrigs have been to two of them, the one in Carousel and the one in St. Thomas. When you go in that synagogue, it's got sand on the floor because the Sephardic Jews remind themselves of the Exodus by having sand on the floor of the synagogues. The oldest baptistry, mikveh, of, of Judaism is found in uh, St. Thomas there. I mean in uh, Carousel there. Though those are the, the, the Jews came into the New World and the Christians came into the New World. You know the story of the pilgrims. I mean, they were getting the heck out of Europe under persecution and they, uh, they were looking for a place to go. They saw themselves kind of like a new Israel. So Jews and Christians also spread. The diaspora went further to the uttermost parts of the earth. The corruption of the church, at least the Western church, hit an impasse. And several people tried to correct the church. And if you know anything about a bureaucracy, it doesn't do well when you try to correct it. Okay? 
And so Martin Luther and others who didn't want to start another church, they wanted to fix the one they loved, got kicked out. Or worse. And what happens when you get kicked out? You start your own. And the Protestant Reformation caused a splitting of Christians that to this day has reached the point where we're not just splitting denominations, we're splitting churches and we're splitting families. We all have our own version of the faith. We call it non-denominationalism. I'll talk more about that later. In the 1500s, the Reformation took place. Now, as soon as these guys got kicked out, you know what happened to the Catholic Church? They went through what's called a counter-reformation. They said, oh. And they cleaned up a lot of their act. In fact, they cleaned it up so much that had they done that first, there wouldn't have been a reformation. Or there wouldn't have been a split. From the Black Death and the exploration and all of the reformation and that, a new group came out and said, you know what? We don't need this religious nonsense. And a new group came out. They're called the Enlightenment. And the Enlightenment said, you know, we can use reason and we can use discovery and we can use science and we don't need those old books. This old book and the Iliad are great literature. But you can't live by that. They're just great stories. They're part of the past. We will look at the sun, we will look at the moon, we will look at the stuff, we will figure it out, we'll reason it out, and we don't need no stinking Bibles. And secularism and humanism began to replace theistic religiosity. All in this time. And that gave us modern democracies. We can even govern ourselves. We don't need the king. And we can use modern science and we can fix the problems of the world. And it created what we now call modernity. Modernity was a, that period that came out of this 13, 14, 15, 1600s into the 17 and 1800s where now we would have modern science we would have the modern behavioral sciences. I'll talk about next time. Psych, social, and anthro is going to replace uh, Moses and, and the prophets. Because we can figure out man by studying man. We don't need to read the instruction manual of the Creator. We probably came from chimpanzees anyway. Religion is the opiate of the people. God's not out there. You're just projecting them. You have an unconscious. And Freud, Marx, and Darwin changed everything with anthropology, psychology, and sociology. And they became the new shamans of the modern worldview. And that created a crisis for the church. What do we do with this? And the result is going to be three new worldviews. Secular, liberal religious, conservative religious. You'll see those all on the back of your, your bulletin. That's what I'm going to talk about next week so you know what they are. So let me give you my conclusion. Then we'll do Q&A if you're still awake. 
The period from the 1300s to the late 1900s is the modern era. It resulted from Western culture and global influences that changed the worldview and created a secular and humanistic worldview that would challenge the traditional theistic and religious one of the pre-modern era. The struggle would bring three modern worldviews that are presently in place. The secular worldview, the liberal religious worldview, and the conservative religious worldview. We're going to take a look at those next time, um, but I couldn't cover those and cover all of that history, 2,000 years or 1,500 years of history like that. So why are you telling us this? Because if you don't know the currents and the influences that make you think the way you think, then you'll think you're thinking right. But you may not be thinking right. You may be thinking right or you may be thinking left, but you may not be thinking biblical. And it's God's worldview that Jews and Christians are supposed to follow, not the world's. So, let's pray.